Jesus is gathering himself a church. It's a purpose planned by the triune God before the foundation of the world. And this is all part of the economy of communication, to share Christ's inheritance with us. The Father predestines us to adopt us as sons and daughters in the Son through the Holy Spirit. And it's God's will that preaching from the catapulpit proclaim, inhabit, and explore that reality. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the CPT Podcast. I'm Zach Wagner. For today's episode, we are featuring another presentation from our most recent theology conference, Power in the Pulpit, which we held outside Chicago this past October in 2023. And this presentation was given by Dr. Kevin Van Hooser, who is a distinguished professor of systematic theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Dr. Van Hooser also serves as the theological mentor for the CPT's very own St. Augustine Fellowship. The title of this presentation is From Bully Pulpits to Catapulpits, Preaching with Well-Tempered Boldness in the Economy of Triune Communication. Can we, by speaking into the air from pulpits, change the world? Paul uses the phrase speaking into the air pejoratively in 1 Corinthians 14.9 to compare the futility of speaking in tongues without translation to a boxer who, because he can't land a punch, is only beating the air. Speaking into the air signifies powerless, ineffectual, and incoherent speech. In a word, short-circuited communication. Speaking into the air is also the title of a book by John Durham Peters. It's an excellent study on the history of communication, its nature, its challenges, general communications theory, if you will. He doesn't treat the special communication that preaching requires, and exemplifies. Preaching, I want to argue, is more, but not less, than a form of human communication. And my purpose in what follows is to explicate the more. Jesus' parable of the sower compares speaking into the air to throwing seed into the air. Speakers can sow, but they can't control where the words land or where they take root. In some cases, the sown word is remarkably effective, yielding understanding and a crop a hundred times larger. I like to read the entire book of Acts as an enacted parable of this kind of sowing, a drama which has the preached word as its protagonist. It's the story of the preached word's advance. For Luke and the other authors of the New Testament, the pulpit, the place from which the word is sown, leads the word, for preaching is an event through which God works. So, to preach the word of God is to speak into the air. That's how Augustine thought about communication in general. He says, when there is an idea in your heart, 
It clothes itself in the sound, somehow gets into this vehicle, travels through the air, comes to me through my ears, and your thought descends into my heart. Jesus taught with parables, but the medium of his communication was open-air preaching, as it was for later evangelists like George Whitfield, Charles Spurgeon, Billy Graham, speaking into the air is arguably the core activity of ministers of the word. My topic is not communication in general, but preaching, understood as a theological act. I want to begin by contrasting public speech in general with the peculiar speech preachers do in the gathered assembly. And that will lead to a reflection on Heinrich Bullinger's claim that the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. And then I turn to my primary aim to give a theology of preaching, a dogmatic description of the speech act of preaching. And then I'll consider some implications for our theme of the power and authority of the pulpit and give some suggestions as to how this theological account of preaching ought to bear on the preacher's boldness of speech. But we begin with the bully pulpit. I wonder, has there ever been a more precarious time to speak into the air than the present? An idle comment captured on a hot mic or on social media can destroy a person's career. Communication these days is fraught with danger. And that's because it involves not just a transfer of information, but social interaction through messages. Interactions that can establish, nurture, disrupt, or ruin relationships. We speak into the air in the hope of breaking through racial, social, and generational barriers. But according to Peters in that book I showed you, Humans are hardwired, he says, by the privacy of their experience to have communication problems. And our polarized political environment is a further complication. Still, the idea of having a bully pulpit, a platform from which to advocate for one's ideas and beliefs, is attractive to many. It was Theodore Roosevelt who first coined this term, bully pulpit, referring to the presidency as a particularly prominent platform for promoting causes and influencing public opinion. Now, in his context, bully meant excellent, such as bully for you. But these days, it may be just as common for people to view any public platform as bully in the other sense, a platform for exercising coercive communicative power. The postmodern suspicion that speaking into the air from a position of privilege is always for the purpose of maintaining that privilege explains why there's so much widespread distrust of communication and why voters rarely change their mind after hearing politicians speak. Sadly, it's becoming increasingly challenging, some would say futile, 
to speak into the air, to preach in our age of widespread despair, distrust, and cynicism. One recent book in preaching bemoans the folk postmodernism that makes even those who've never heard of Derrida suspicious of authorities and authoritative claims. To be postmodern is to be post-certain. Pastors who have to speak into this poisonous public air on a weekly basis may understandably want to empower their bully pulpits by honing their communication skills. Some theorists distinguish between tactical and strategic approaches, and some speakers rely primarily on tactics, desiring to craft and deliver sermons with insights from general communication studies, messages that persuade people to believe or do certain things or succeed in being relevant or at least entertaining. But by way of contrast, speaking into the air is strategic if it aims to influence a person's sense of what is real, if it aims to shape their social imaginary. It's tempting to use every technology that comes along in the hope that, like the printing press, new media might speed our ministry of the gospel and help us to out-communicate the opposition. But is it wise to want to be like the other digital nations? Augustine, a classically trained rhetorician, encouraged Christians to plunder the Egyptians, particularly their persuasive techniques, so long as one deploys them to speak what is true for the purpose of building up the communion of saints, not for career purposes or for increasing the number of your Facebook likes. Augustine knew that pastors speak into the air in vain, but for the grace of God. But before we say more about God's gracious activity, I want to explore another kind of pulpit. The catapulpit. Uh, no, it's not a weapon for flinging one's ideas into the air in the arena of public opinion, nor is it a stage for a pastor to display talents, sense of humor, or good looks. That's why we have TV. By catapulpit, I'm calling attention to preaching being in accordance with a prior subject matter to which it is accountable. I'm thinking in particular of 1 Corinthians 15, 3, where Paul says he delivered to the Corinthians a message of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with, kata plus the accusative, in accordance with the scriptures. A kata pulpit is a holy place. It's a set-apart platform for speaking words into the air that are in accordance with the scriptures. The pulpit is not the place to exercise one's First Amendment right to freedom of speech, at least not if that means free from the written word of God. I remember one even song at King's College, Cambridge, when instead of a Bible passage, we had a reading from D.H. Lawrence's Sons and Lovers. Pastors, 
please make sure your preaching is in accordance with the scriptures, the subject matter of the Bible. You see, the noun that follows that preposition kata specifies the criterion, the, the standard, the norm in light of which a statement is authoritative or true. For example, Luke tells us in Acts 2.23 that Jesus was delivered up according to, kata, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In Romans 16.25, Paul says that his gospel and preaching of Christ is according to, kata, the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. In Colossians 2.8, Paul contrasts the deceptive philosophy, which is kata human tradition, with his own preaching, which is kata Christ. So preaching from a kata pulpit is preaching that corresponds to or is in conformity with an external standard, the will of God revealed in the word of God, living and written. So what we proclaim from a catapulpit is bound speech. Both our conscience and our discourse must be captive to the word of God. But our speech is not so bound that preachers can only repeat the Bible word for word. The genesis of understanding begins only with the exodus from verbatim repetition. Over the years, I've used various metaphors to describe the work of the pastor theologian. Uh, farmers of men and women, bodybuilders, theater directors of the company of the gospel, artisans in the house of God. Let me now share another metaphor that may be especially apt in thinking about the catapulpit, the curator. Now, I'm aware that the idea of a person in charge of various collections, like the 22,000 sets of condiment dispensers at the Salt and Pepper Museum in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, <laughs> the Antique Dog Collar Museum in Leeds Castle, England, or the Celebrity Lingerie Hall of Fame in Hollywood. Sorry, no picture. Uh, <laughs> I know these museums may not generate much excitement. Accessioning and cataloging are hardly superpowers, but the essence of the curator's vocation has everything to do, I think, with the kata pulpit. The term curator comes from the Latin cura, to take care of. Whatever the collection, a curator has two main tasks, preservation and presentation. Pastor theologians are responsible for preserving the collection of books that comprise the Old and New Testaments. Pastors preserve not the physical objects so much as the content, a process that involves study and research, often with logos, often in collaboration with others, in order to understand the items in the collection. Like the Jews, pastors have been entrusted with the oracles of God and, like Paul, with the good deposit of the gospel. But the pulpit comes into its, comes into its own, though, 
when we consider the curator's second task, presenting. You see, the curator is the person who interprets and exhibits the items in the collection to the public. A curator has to decide which items to display, how to arrange them, how to communicate their significance to the public. So think of the pulpit as a place where pastors make the word of God accessible and intelligible to a gathered assembly, a public. If the pastor theologian is the curator of the word of God, preaching is the principal public exhibit, and the pulpit is the exhibit case. Good curators also serve as advocates for their collection by showing their continued significance and relevance. So in addition to preserving and presenting, curators must also promote the value of the gathered assembly's continued attention and participation. Curators have to communicate their passion for the subject matter so that their enthusiasm becomes infectious. So in preserving, presenting, and inviting reflection on and response to God's word, pastor curators lead others in the congregations to care about participating in the story of Scripture as much as they do. So to sum up this new metaphor of curating, preaching is word care, preservation, word craft, presentation, and word cheer, promotion. If you're still not convinced by my new metaphor, consider the etymology of the word curator. It's the same root as the old English term for pastor, curate, one who cares for the people in his parish. So we curate the people of God by serving as curators of the word of God. And that brings me to my central topic, the theology of preaching, by which I mean a dogmatic account of the pastor theologian's sermons. I don't want to give a topical sermon, so in a moment I'll give you my text. But first, let me state a question that I'd like you to ponder. Are sermons delivered from a well-curated catapulpit the Word of God? Does it follow from God having spoken behind the text in history and in the text of Scripture that God also speaks in front of the text through preaching? According to the book of Acts, the church grew because believers received the word that begets faith, not directly from Christ, but from those who preached Christ. Paul asks his Roman readers to become the feet of the Isaianic servant who brings good news. He charges others, like Timothy, preach the word. So what I'm calling the text of my presentation this morning is Bullinger's claim in the Second Helvetic Confession, predicatio dei est verbum dei, the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. And what follows gives a more, some nuance to this idea. It goes on to say, Wherefore, when this word of God is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, 
We believe that the very word of God is preached and received by the faithful. Bullinger is here correcting the enthusiasts who claim to have direct revelations from God. And God can use other means to bring about faith. Karl Barth mentions God speaking through Russian communism, a flute concerto, a blossoming shrub, or a dead dog. But preaching is the ordinary and ordained means of God speaking. Scripture's normative, to be sure, but the preaching of the word becomes the instrumental means that the Spirit uses as he causes the faithful to hear the very voice of God. So Bullinger's formation of this idea is the best-known example, but Luther and Calvin made similar claims. Luther, of course, made the sermon the centerpiece of Protestant Christianity, even if it was Zwingli who first recommended moving the pulpit to the center of the church. Luther explained the power of the pulpit in effecting Reformation, saying, I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. The word of God did it all. And commenting on Romans 10.15, and how are they to preach unless they are sent, Luther says, we recognize whether a preacher has been sent from God if he speaks only what is commanded to him and not what he likes or has invented. Nevertheless, Even those who have a mandate to preach must acknowledge their limits. So Luther goes on to say, I can get no farther than to men's ears. Their hearts I cannot reach. That is God's work alone. We have the right to speak, but not the power to do. To preach God's word is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for Luther, that means both the message Jesus proclaimed and the message about what God has done in Christ. It's a liberating message which should be so presented that you hear your God speak to you. Talk about curating. So I began by asking whether by speaking into the air we can change the world. Calvin thought so. Calvin viewed preaching as the primary means by which God's work is accomplished in an individual's life and in the Christian community. And boy, did he give the Lord plenty of opportunity to work, preaching more than 2,000 sermons. And all of them, Calvin kept in mind the voice that spoke from the cloud at Jesus' transfiguration. Listen to him, Christ. The prophets proclaimed only what had been spoken to them by God. And even Jesus said, my teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. Preachers do well to remember that. On the other hand, Calvin responds in no uncertain terms to those who think God's word is distorted or deluded by the baseness of the men called to teach it. Some thought that preaching was superfluous. He says, it is a singular privilege that God deigns to consecrate to himself the mouths and tongues of men in order that his voice may resound in them. 
This is also part of divine accommodation, part of God's stooping and lisping. God wants to speak to us through human beings with accents. For Karl Barth, himself a pastor theologian, the sermon is the minister's prime problem because the challenge is to proclaim the word of God, which for him meant primarily Jesus Christ himself, not a set of statements about Christ. The word of God for Bart is the commission content and criterion of proclamation. About 100 years ago, Bart wrote an open letter to his former teacher, Adolf von Harnack, and insisted the task of theology is one with the task of preaching. And in the same year, he urged Reformed churches to recover this theme of God speaking, Deus Dixit. You know that for Bart, the word of God has three forms, the making known of his revelation in Christ, the witness to that in Scripture, and then the proclamation of that witness, Scripture, in the church. And it's been said that Bart's life work was one grand single meditation on the presupposition of the sermon, not on the secondary homiletical question, how does one do it, but on the primary theological question, how can one do this? How can human discourse be a means of God's word? Short answer, God freely, graciously, and miraculously chooses to make himself known present in faithful proclamation. Bart says, God is Lord in the wording of his word. But perhaps you're thinking about the implications of Bullinger's thesis. It raises some important questions. When is preaching the word of God? How can we be sure that it is? Some people worry that if we equate any one sermon as a word of God, we're beginning to treat human explanations and ideas as God's words. So let me wax analytic for a moment to clarify the issues. Is all preaching the word of God or only some preaching? Is preaching always the word of God or only sometimes? There's only so many logical possibilities here. Either all, some, no preaching is always the word of God, or all, some, no preaching is never the word of God, or all, some, no preaching is sometimes the word of God. I think we can eliminate the extreme views, namely the idea that preaching is never the word of God or that preaching is always the word of God, and we're left then with the option that some preaching is sometimes the word of God. But that generates questions too. When is preaching the word of God? Under what conditions? And when these conditions are met, does preaching convey the same authority and power as God's word? And then how can we recognize preaching that is the word of God? And if, is it still the word of God if we don't recognize it? If a sermon falls in a chapel and there are no ears to hear it, is it the word of God? 
Deus dixit, God speaks. A dogmatic account of preaching must begin here with this astounding claim that the creator of heaven and earth has spoken in human language. And consider if God did not actually speak with words, we would have no idea what God is up to. But he has spoken through prophets and apostles in scripture and through his son. The question is, is God's word still living and active if we confine it to the past, to propositional revelation? I think there may be a danger of a peculiarly Christian form of deism here. Not the claim that God created the world and then withdrew from it, but rather the claim that he inspired scripture and then withdrew from it. The question is whether preaching is a means of God speaking in the present. Hebrews 3.15, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Some commentators have seen a connection between Bart's idea that God's word is God in action and the philosophical notion of speech acts, a reminder that speakers aren't simply uttering sounds, locuting, but in saying something, speakers are also performing actions. They're illocuting, like promising and commanding and so on. And then, by illocuting, speakers can bring about further actions, perlocuting. So, for example, John and his gospel is not simply writing Greek sentences, that's locuting. He's narrating the story of Jesus, that's his action or illocution. And he's doing it in order to persuade readers. These things are written so that you may believe, that's the perlocution. Nicholas Wolterstorff compares and contrasts two Reformed understandings of what it is to identify preaching with the Word of God by means of these speech acts. First, he examines the Swiss liturgical theologian Jean-Jacques van Alman, who draws on Bart and sees the minister as proclaiming the Word of God, presenting Christ. In van Alman's words, preaching prevents the petrification of the word of God in the there and then of its coming in Jesus Christ and makes that there and then newly operative in the here and now. On this model, however, the preacher, strictly speaking, does not speak for God. Rather, the word of God proclaims itself by means of the preacher's speech so that the sermon becomes the word of God, God's personal address. In contrast to that, Calvin views the minister as the deputy of God. Preaching is here what Wolterstorff calls deputized discourse. And like the Old Testament prophets, the preacher locutes, provides the words and sentences, but the illocutionary act the promising, the commanding, and so on. That's God's act, says Walter Storff. So he's suggesting that preaching, like prophesying, is a kind of double agency discourse. But the most ambitious attempt to use speech act theory to explain how preaching the word of God is the word of God 
is Sam Chan's doctoral dissertation, now published, Preaching as the Word of God. He views preaching as discourse, something someone says to someone about something for some purpose. And this allows him to discuss the preacher's intentions and to draw on speech acts criteria for distinguishing between happy and unhappy speech acts, felicitous and unfelicitous speech acts, those that hit their mark and those that miss fire. And the gist of his argument is that the preacher speaks at God's behest and on God's behalf, relocuting and re-illocuting the divine speech acts previously locuted and illocuted by the prophets and apostles in Scripture. But he adds, and this is important, the human preacher is not responsible for the perlocutionary effects. He faults Bart for appearing to reduce the whole speech act to that perlocutionary effect by identifying the word of God with the event of faith that comes from hearing. But he also faults expository preachers for exaggerating the locutionary dimension and for failing to capture the elocutionary act. And then Chan goes on to answer my earlier question about whether preaching that fails to be recognized as the word of God is still the word of God. It is, says Chan, if the sermon is a happy speech act, that is, if it meets the conditions for a legitimate speech act, and those include, is the person a commissioned speech agent and has the person re-illocuted the original illocution? So, speech act theory provides some helpful concepts for understanding what's going on, but I think what we really need is a more robust theological analysis of preaching, a dogmatic account that locates preaching in the triune economy of communication. God is a communicator and always has been. I've argued elsewhere that God's being is a being in communicative activity. The perfect life of Father, Son, and Spirit is a communication, a sharing of life with one another that issues in communion. And preaching corresponds to the communicative character of God and to the communicative means God has appointed to bring about interpersonal communion. Seen in this light, preaching is an essentially theological activity, not just because of its content, but because the God of the gospel is also the ultimate communicative agent, as I hope to show. Well, Jesus came preaching the gospel of God. Of course he did. God is a communicating God. And everything God does is the work of all three persons. The Father initiates, the Son executes, the Spirit perfects the communication. And in particular, the Son performs the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. What sets preaching from the catapulpit apart from every other form of human speech is its service to the written word of Scripture, but also its participation in the Father-sent, Son-executed, 
spirit-empowered prophetic ministry of Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 4.11 that the risen and ascended Christ gives gifts to the church to equip all the saints for the work of ministry. And the gifts listed here are people, various kinds of ministers of the word, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers. These are all God-ordained means of divine communication. These are all divinely ordained means by which God communicates his life and light and love. This is what I'm calling the economy of communication. And it's in this economy that we should locate preaching, which is amazing. Preachers have a place in a pattern of divine communication. Preaching is located within the plans and purposes of God for this world. Think about that. God ordains that, his, that the words of the preacher speak into the air his ordained purpose. I think this is what Bullinger means. For God himself alone, by sending his Holy Spirit into the hearts and minds of men, doth open our hearts, persuade our minds, and cause us with all our heart to believe that which we, by his word and teaching, have learned to believe. Speaking into the air, the word of God is extraordinary. Perhaps too often we look for divine action in the wrong place. It's not in the chaos of the thunderstorm or the quirkiness of the quark. Perhaps it starts in the pulpit, which Herman Melville famously compares in Moby Dick to the prow at the front of a ship and says the pulpit leads the world. Preachers participate in what is ultimately Christ's prophetic work. Here is Bullinger again. He says, that thing which Christ worketh in his Catholic church inwardly, the very same outwardly he declareth and testifieth by his ministers. So may we not say with Calvin that Christ is really present, not simply in the sacraments, but also in the ministry of the word. Can we not say that the pulpit is his throne and preachers and emissaries his heralds? Because preaching, viewed theologically, doesn't simply proclaim the God of the gospel, but presents him, or rather serves as an occasion for his own self-presentation. Don Carson talks about preaching as re-revelation and says there's a sense in which God, who revealed himself by that word in the past, is re-revealing himself by that same word once again. We're used to asking, what would Jesus do? But a recent collection of essays poses another question, what is Jesus doing? And it goes on to answer, Jesus is gathering himself a church. This is arguably the purpose of the economy of communication. It's a purpose planned by the triune God before the foundation of the world, as we learn from Ephesians 1. 
And this is all part of the economy of communication, to share Christ's inheritance with us. The Father predestines us to adopt us as sons and daughters in the Son through the Holy Spirit. And it's God's will that preaching from the catapulpit proclaim, inhabit, and explore that reality. So preaching is the seriously joyful practice by which the church is taken into the very life of God. <clears throat> Speaking invites others into our space to exist with us, to associate with us in real time. Similarly, preaching invites us to become communicants, communicants in the economy of God's self-communication. Ministry, says Andrew Root, is the movement into being of neighbor and God through act, through this act of speaking into the air. It's a participation in the economy of communication that ultimately comes from the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit. Well, I have to finish, of course, in time-honored fashion with an application, an application of my homily on preaching. And I have three points. Each one concerns the posture of the preacher as curator of God's word in the catapulpit. First, whatever authority a sermon carries derives not from the force of a, the pastor's personality or academic degrees. It comes from the office of the ministry of word and sacrament. We're commissioned speakers. It comes, as Calvin says, from the word. It's the word's ministry with which we've been entrusted. Think about it. People don't go to museums or art galleries to meet the curator. They go to see the art. Pastors are curators of God's word. Again, the preacher is not one who applies an old world to new situations, but the pastor and preacher is a servant and an instrument of the living word. John Piper acknowledges the privilege and responsibility of speaking from the catapulpit. He says the Bible-oriented preacher wants the congregation to know that his words, the preachers, if they have any abiding worth, are in accord with, kata, God's words. He wants this to be obvious to them. That is the root of his humility and authority. Second, preaching that is in accordance with the Scripture should be a species of bold or fearless speech. The power of the pulpit is, in Calvin's words, the power to dare boldly to do all things by God's word, to compel all worldly power, glory, wisdom, and exaltation to yield to and obey God's majesty. Here I stand in the pulpit, an ordained minister of the word, an ambassador of Christ. That's what preachers are. As John Webster says, uh, says, to hear the word exposited is to hearken to the address of Christ through his commissioned witnesses. At his glorification to the Father's right hand, 
Jesus Christ does not resign his office of self-communication. Boldness of speech, therefore, stems not from self-confidence in one's own ratiocination or rhetoric. It comes from the encouragement of the Spirit who encourages us. He gives us a spirit of fearlessness. And it comes from the conviction that preachers are simply the porte-parole of Christ, his heralds, his, the heralds of the king's speech. The Apostle Paul is a paradigm of one who proclaimed the gospel boldly, and boldness of speech may well have been on his mind when he encouraged the Corinthians, be imitators of me. And then third, when preachers proclaim the king's speech, they tap into the peculiar power of the catapulpit to fling not stones, but stories into the air, the better to take captive what Paul calls the eyes of the heart. Every thought, imagination, and social imaginary. Those who proclaim the king have the power to turn the world upside down, just as Jesus did with his parables. The great Scottish preacher, James Stewart, knew that it was not enough to believe something theoretically without ever seeing it, imagining it, realizing it in its exciting, dramatic reality. So preachers have, in Calvin's words, the power to build up Christ's household and cast down Satan's. And the power of the pulpit consists in its ability to exhibit the already-not-yet reality of this new humanity in Christ. According to Calvin, preaching is the instrument God uses to span time and space to bring Christian, Christ, and cross together. And Rembrandt does exactly that in his painting, The Raising of the Cross, when he painted himself into the scene. A picture may speak a thousand words, but the words preachers utter from the catapulpit are the means the Spirit has chosen to use to arrest attention, form consciousness, and capture the imagination. John Piper once said that even a sentence can change your life as it offers a new glimpse into reality and truth. It's the privilege and responsibility of all Christians, and not preachers only, to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And the power of the pulpit is not in competition with the congregation's embodied witness. Rather, the catapulpit is the template and catalyst, the concentrate of the congregation's witness. Can we, by preaching and speaking into the air, change the world? Yes, we can. Through these ordinary human words, God intrudes into the intimate realm of our imaginations, presents Christ, reshapes our world. I believe preaching is the cutting edge of the words forward progress, has been ever since the book of Acts, when the word empowered by the Spirit 
causes an increase and multiplication. The word is able enabled to prevail mightily. And we, it makes forward progress by communicating Christ. And yes, preachers can turn the world upside down, one heart and mind at a time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the CPT Podcast, a theology podcast for the church. If you appreciated this episode, could I ask you to consider sharing it online with others, rating the show on Apple Podcasts, or even leaving a review? Uh, It means a lot to us, and it helps others hear about the show. The CPT Podcast is a production of the Center for Pastor Theologians. You can learn more about the CPT by visiting us at pastortheologians.com. You can also find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our podcast producer is Seth Porch. Our editor for today's episode was Trenton Jones. Our music is composed by Andrew Gerlicher. I'm Zach Wagner. Thanks for listening.